even if we've, we're well on our way to solving the health crisis, we have an economic crisis in this city that could linger for years without the right leadership. It is probably true that he is the most tied into the incoming federal apparatus, which we need a lot of help from. I'm Lillian Ruiz. And I'm Charlie O'Donnell. Welcome to the Schlepp to City Hall. The number one New York City election podcast hosted by two undecided voters from Brooklyn. All right. So we just finished recording with Sean Donovan. We're not going to give away our own personal leaning. Although, to be honest, my vote's up for grabs. I don't know about you. Yeah, 100%. I need to, I want an excuse to not have to read newsletters and instead can just sit in and talk to these people directly. Yeah, it's a totally selfish exercise on our part. But having just sat down with Sean, what is your theory of the case for Sean? How do you think he has the potential to win this? I think my first caveat is I am the furthest thing from a political strategist and literally these Everybody are- yeah. <laughs> Everyone's a political strategist these days. You have a Twitter account. That's all you need. <laughs> the things that come to my mind is in my head, there are like two buckets of voters in New York City. One are like the old school voter who they've got a specific issue, a specific vantage, a spe- like a super, super specific thing that they're looking for from their mayor and they don't want the whole song and dance. They want like their one thing. They want someone to talk to them about their one thing. And then I think there's the other type of voter who my assumption is skews younger, who is used to sort of thinking in this like bigger national political identity. And they have a little bit more of a willingness to, to, to think about systems. And I found Sean's fascinating because he understands all of the different systems that play into being a mayor from a way higher level than I've ever really thought of. And I thought that that was interesting, but I could also see how that more old school voter or who's like a one or two issue voter might just be like, I, this is more information than I need. I would say I agree. Like you, you just mentioned that He talks nationally, and I think if all politics is national these days, he has a real shot because that's his network. He said it, and it is probably true that he is the most tied into the incoming federal apparatus, which we need a lot of help from. He puts himself out as being really tied to the Obama-Biden White House years. And, you know, there are many New Yorkers who, you know, look back fondly to a time when Obama was president. And, you know, if if somebody's looking for uh, a little piece of the Obama administration and, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of mayor we want. Yeah, sure. On the flip side... What you describe as the local issues voter, like I always think of them as like cops, teachers, and firemen that really care about alternate side and garbage pickup. And I wonder if he comes off as too 
national, if you will, which is funny because he's a local guy. He grew up here. Yeah. Like, you I know, mean, he's a New Yorker. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is like, I, I also don't, I don't want to be too unfair saying that he's so national. I think maybe national is not the way to, to talk about it. He has a really, he has a very federal, broad government lens. And I don't, I can't think at least of a time in, in my lifetime where a local figure has that kind of super broad national experience. And I think there are a lot of people who would find that to be an exceptional asset and a lot of people who would maybe cast a side eye to it. I agree. I, I think that's totally fair. Look, as New York, to some to some extent, we think of ourselves as this little separate protected little bubble uh, from the rest of the country. And, and now, you know, in many ways, we find ourselves very intertwined in things that are you know, going on at that federal infrastructure level, monetary level, taxation level, all of that sort of stuff. And that's going to be super useful. Well, without further ado, here's our interview. Hi, everyone. We are incredibly excited to have candidate for mayor Sean Donovan with us today. We'd love for you to give us a little introduction. Tell us who you are, what you do, and what do you believe you've accomplished so far? It is great to be here with both of you, Charlie, Lillian. I really, really appreciate you having me on. And I'm a candidate for mayor, and I am both humbled and excited to be part of an effort to repair, rebuild, and even reimagine this city I love at a time when so many New Yorkers are hurting. Prior to running for mayor, you've had a couple of very interesting positions. Do you mind telling folks a little bit about that? Absolutely. I like to say, even though I'm running for mayor, I'm a public servant, not a politician. And I really, I've had a 30-year career of, of working in neighborhoods in New York City and being a public servant, but I'm proudest of having served all eight years in the cabinet for President Barack Obama and for Vice President Joe Biden. And uh, first, for the first five and a half years, I was housing secretary. And for the last two and a half years, I was the budget director. I oversaw the $4 trillion federal budget. Folks in New York are, are going to be particularly interested to hear about how that ties into how you look uh, towards the future for New York. Before I was in President Obama's cabinet, I was housing commissioner here in the city of New York under Mayor Bloomberg. And, and as you remember, obviously, none of us can forget that 9-11 was one of the most profound and devastating days of my life. And I was really proud to serve to help rebuild the city after 9-11. And because of the work that I did there, I got noticed by President Obama. He asked me to become housing secretary in the midst of the worst housing crisis of our lifetimes. Thousands and thousands of New Yorkers, particularly black and brown New Yorkers, were losing their homes. And because of the work I'd done there, he asked me to lead the entire national effort. So that was, that was pretty tough. 
He asked me to lead the entire federal response, not just for HUD, but for the entire federal government when Sandy uh, hit New York. And uh, like you, I'm a Brooklynite. I have friends, neighbors that lost their homes, their businesses. I even have a close friend who lost his daughter in Sandy. And it was a real honor that President Obama asked me to lead that, that effort. But that was a really tough fight as well to come back from such really the storm of, of our lifetimes. And after that, he asked me to be budget director. Three weeks in, Ebola emerged. And I ended up in the situation room with Dr. Fauci and Tom Frieden, the CDC director, with all of our military leaders, with President Obama, with Vice President Biden. And we went to work to make sure that what was an emerging global health threat didn't become a pandemic that cost tens of thousands of New Yorkers their lives. And so all of those challenges really make me a unique candidate to be mayor at this time of crisis in New York. That's what we need to be doing now is not just to rebuild what we had before, but to rebuild something better at this moment of crisis. I'll just add in Regis High School graduate, Dr. <laughs> Anthony Fauci. I just feel, feel the need to make sure that, that that's, that's clear. Claiming and a little you, hometown pride there, right? Yeah, I just, you know, I just I wanted to slip that in. Speaking of the hometown crowd, you're you're a native New Yorker, and and I'd just be curious to hear a little bit about your New York origin story. What neighborhood did you grow up, and your family situation, and and the early you know formative memories of, yeah. of growing up as a New Yorker? You know, I, I'm so glad you asked because this is really why I love New York City so much. Is what it meant for for my family and particularly my dad. My grandfather, my father's father, was working the docks in London and to try to make a decent living, he actually got on a boat, went to West Africa and then to South America. And ultimately after learning Spanish and a whole set of new skills, he did well enough to be able to give my dad a good education. And my dad, who grew up in Costa Rica and Lima, Peru, he came to the U.S. like so many other immigrants to, to go to school. And he came to New York City because it was a city for him of, of the future, of opportunity. I guess my dad, you would call him a tech entrepreneur before those words existed. He was in computers right at the very beginning. And New York was a place where somebody like him, he, he only had enough money to basically buy stationery to start mailing letters to potential customers for his business. But he spent his whole life here in New York, building a business and making a life of opportunity for me and, and my four brothers and sisters. And so I am deeply, deeply grateful to this city for giving me a chance. But I also saw a different New York City around me growing up, a New York at a different time of crisis that drove my public service and what and the choices that I made. I was born in 66. I watched homelessness exploding on our streets. I watched literally the South Bronx, Harlem, many neighborhoods in central Brooklyn 
crumbling, literally burning to the ground. And it, and it lit a fire in me to go to work on behalf of the city that I loved to make a difference. And, and I started volunteering in a homeless shelter in college. Right after I finished school, I came back to work for a nonprofit, rebuilding those very same neighborhoods I'd seen as a kid. And that was what really started me on a 30-year career in housing and homelessness, on the front lines of economic and social justice. I'm curious as to what made you consider running for mayor. Did you ever think about it earlier? You know, it's it's interesting, Lillian, Charlie. I I said earlier, I'm I'm a public servant, not a politician. I had always wanted to be a person who just solved problems. And I first really started thinking about it. One of the great things about being HUD secretary is you're kind of the, the mayor's person in the cabinet. Nobody in the cabinet gets to work more closely with mayors around the country. And, you know, right when I came in, not only did we have this housing crisis, Katrina had hit a few years before. And, and I'll tell you, I went down very, like in my first month in as HUD secretary, there were many neighborhoods like the Lower Ninth Ward that looked like Katrina to hit them the day before. And I thought that that was something that was just completely unacceptable. And I went to work. I probably visited New Orleans a dozen times. I became very, very close friends with Mitch Landrew, who was the mayor of, of New Orleans as a result. He's still one of my closest friends. I started working with other mayors on floods and hurricanes on the foreclosure crisis. And, and I really saw up close and personal, I understood this when I worked for, for Mayor Bloomberg, but then I saw it again and again that mayor is really the most important position you can have to make a difference in people's lives. I, I sometimes joke that you know, when I worked in local government, I was in retail. When I went to HUD, I was in wholesale. When I was at OMB managing the $4 trillion federal budget, I was in manufacturing and I never missed, I, I never met the customer. Well, when you're mayor, you really touch and feel people's lives every day in a way that's powerful. And that was when I think the, the seed was planted, but it never, I didn't really quite realize it. And I never thought, seriously about doing it, partly because I just loved my job in the Obama administration. I never wanted to leave. That's why I stayed all eight years in the cabinet. But I'll tell you the specific moment when I think I really had to look in the mirror and ask myself what I was going to do was the very last night of the Obama administration. This is literally the night before Donald Trump's inauguration. There was a small group of us standing on the Truman balcony. The very last night of the Obama administration, we were looking out, it was night, we were looking out at the Washington Monument, all of the mall, and imagining what this country could go through the next four years with Donald Trump as, as president. I think so many of us had to look in the mirror and say, what are you going to do about it by coming back and running for mayor? And that was what really, the, if there was one moment that lit the fire under me to come back and do it, that was it. Right. 
And you, you know, you were talking about <laughs> that you you were kind of the the mayor's guy, and you've seen the role of mayor from all of these different angles, and it gives you a unique vantage point. But how do you think that it will give you a unique approach to action? Well, first of all, I think no one understands what it means to lead through crisis like I do. Nobody else in this field. Again, to be housing commissioner in the wake of 9-11, to be HUD secretary in the midst of the worst housing crisis, to lead after Sandy hit this town, to be at the forefront of the response to Ebola, no one has the breadth and the depth of experience of leading through crisis that I do. And I think that gives me a unique understanding of how to bring people together and to not only, as I said, repair and rebuild this city, but to reimagine it in this, in this moment. So that's something, you know, I've learned some real lessons about crisis through that experience, lessons that you only get when you have to lead through it as I have. One of them is that those who are the most vulnerable before the crisis are always hit the hardest. Mm -hmm. So I, I was outraged, but I wasn't surprised that black and brown communities were hit so much harder than others by COVID. But the other thing so that I've learned, and President Obama used to say this, is that we can't let a crisis go to waste. And, and what he meant by that, we don't have to build back to what we had before. We need to build back in a way that is stronger and safer, but is also more fair. And so for me, that experience really is unique. So given all of the challenges that New York is facing right now, where do you th what do you think are the like the two or three most pressing challenges that the next mayor will have to work on? O obviously, and, and hopefully we have the pandemic under control by the time the mayoral inauguration happens. We have in so many communities around this city depression level unemployment. So even if we've we're well on our way to solving the health crisis. We have an economic crisis in this city that could linger for years without the right leadership. And that means that we have to go to work rebuilding communities, rebuilding our small businesses, ensuring tourists come back to the city, all of the different things that make New York City work. And that is going to be, I think, job one for the new mayor. One of the things I think is really unique about me is that I know how to go to work with local communities. For the past 25 years, I've been working in neighborhoods. I have the relationships, the knowledge, the experience to work not just with our leaders on Wall Street, our biggest CEOs, but also with our community leaders that you've never heard of, the heroes of our, of our city that are hurting right now. And I'll give you an example. When, even though I was running for mayor, when this pandemic hit, 
I knew because of my experience at the federal level that our emergency food system was not going to be up to the task. I knew we were going to have four hour lines at soup kitchens in the Bronx and so many communities. But I, and I also knew that our restaurants were going to be devastated. And so I said to myself, why can't we get our restaurants cooking to make fresh, hot, healthy meals for those who are going hungry? And you know, I thought something else. We're one of the great technology cities in the world. If you can order a $30 meal on your phone with Uber Eats, why not be able to order an emergency meal from a restaurant on your phone as well, rather than go wait and potentially expose yourself to COVID in the line at a, at a soup kitchen? So I went to work. I raised over a million dollars, put together something called Common Table. And we got restaurants cooking again in the five hardest hit neighborhoods of the city, making emergency meals and delivering them directly to people's doors or allowing them to pick them up in, in restaurants when it was convenient to them. Those are the kinds of creative solutions that we need from the next mayor that are going to allow our neighborhoods to get going even before this pandemic is behind us. We need to make sure that we're jump-starting our business. Think about it. We've closed indoor dining again because of the spike of cases. There are thousands of restaurants potentially that may not make it through this winter. So these are the kinds of solutions we need now from our city government, and we're certainly going to need them a year from now when the next mayor takes office. So clearly, jobs, economic development. The other thing I would say, though, is the thing I've worked my whole life on is housing. We had a housing crisis on our hands before COVID hit. We were literally January 1st of this year, just a few days ago, we could have had the worst eviction crisis in the history of our city. But I went to work as well. I, I'm the only candidate in this race who has deep, deep relationships with everyone in the incoming Biden-Harris administration, with our leaders on, on Capitol Hill. Chuck Schumer, Hakeem Jeffries, so many others. And I went to work making sure that we extended in this recent bill that was passed in Congress, we extended the eviction moratorium, that we got $25 billion in housing aid. So I think we've hopefully, if if the mayor implements this in, in a decent way, I think we've avoided the worst of the crisis, but we're still going to have an ongoing housing crisis. We still have more homeless people sleeping on our streets now than any time since the Great Depression, more than when homelessness lit a fire under me as, uh, as a kid growing up in this city. And, and housing is going to remain. I hear this from New Yorkers all the time as I'm getting around the city. Housing is, besides having a, a job today, housing is the most important issue. Just to follow up on the two topics that you brought up, you know, you mentioned rebuilding you know, the, the economy and, and, and also just on the, the housing point, what's one specific thing in each of those two areas, housing and, you know, economic development that you want to be able to push to do that you will do that the mayor has the power to influence if you were to become mayor to, to address those two areas? Well, Charlie, it's such an important question. And, and let me start by answering it this way. You know, most 
people running for office, you have to take their word for it. You don't have to with me. This is not rhetoric to me. It's it's reality. It's what I've done my whole career. And I have real progress that I've made on these issues that you can look at and say, I believe Sean can do this because he's done it. So on, on homelessness, just to be specific, I led the strategy for President Obama that dramatically reduced homelessness across the country. We reduced street and family homelessness by about 25%. Think about this, in 80 cities and states, working with the best mayors, we ended veteran homelessness, not reduced it, we ended it, we got it to zero. And so on the housing front, I am committed to making sure that we end street homelessness during my time uh, as mayor. And I know we can do it because I've done it. And, and the way that you do it is to reimagine the right to shelter that we have in our city as a right to housing. When you focus, as this mayor has, on building more shelters, on just putting a Band-Aid on the problem, you not only have huge human costs, but it, as a former budget director, I got to say, it actually costs more to the taxpayer as well. How can that be? Because when you're sleeping on the streets, where do you get your health care? In the emergency room. You cycle in and out of Rikers and the mental health wards of our public hospitals. Instead, if we really do what's called housing first. This is the strategy I led for President Obama. We not only save people's lives, they end up being able to get back to work, get back on track in their lives. And we don't have the huge costs of their misfortune for the entire city. On the issue of jobs, one of the things that I think is so important is, you know, we're, we have the chance to be the leading tech city in the world. If I'm mayor, I'm going to make sure that we become the leading city on climate technology, on public health at a time when we've seen the devastating impacts on public health. We have all the ingredients here in New York to be the best public health and biotech city in the world. I have a strategy to do that, but all of that is going to depend on building an educational system so that every kid growing up in New York City, no matter what they look like, what language they speak, where they come from, if they're in a public school in New York City, they can imagine themselves in a job of the future. And so a very specific commitment, I, this was part of my education platform that I put out last week very specific commitment I would make is that every single high school student in New York City would have at least one paid internship while they were in high school. And going on to CUNY, getting a, whether it's a two-year, four-year degree, I would create the biggest apprenticeship effort in the history of the city, what I call the New York City Job Corps. And I would list, enlist in my first 100 days the 100 CEOs of the largest companies in New York to make commitments 
to hire those kids coming out of our, our public schools and out of CUNY. That's the kind of cradle to career pipeline that we need to build so that we're not just building back our economy, but we're building back an equitable economy so that every New Yorker has a future in this in this city. Right. So one one question that I have as a little bit of a, a tag on or follow up is, you know, when we talk about, you know, innovation and these innovative solutions, and then we hold them up against this reality of of going into this next term with a pretty unprecedented budget gap, you know, at least to the uninitiated. What, how do you marry those two things together? Most people, we want to see innovation. People don't want to see services cut. No one wants to see taxes go up. Well, Lillian, let me say something again I said a few moments ago. Mm-hmm. You don't have to take my word for this. This isn't just talk for me. I've walked the walk on this. Yeah. As I said earlier, after five and a half years is. HUD secretary, President Obama asked me to be the budget director, to lead the $4 trillion federal budget. And, you know, folks forget now, it's hard to look past the Trump administration and all the devastation he's done. President Obama inherited the biggest budget deficit since World War II. And by the time he left office and I'd finished as budget director, We'd brought down that budget deficit faster than at any time since World War II. And we made big, bold, progressive investments in healthcare, the Affordable Care Act, in housing and homelessness, in infrastructure and jobs. And so I'm the only one in this race who's actually faced a challenge like this and figured out how to fix it. And the way to do, and I'm also the only candidate who's been specific about this. I published an op-ed in the Daily News a few months back when, when Mayor de Blasio put forth the false choice of either laying off tens of thousands of, of New Yorkers' best workers or borrowing money to fix the problem. I said, it's a false choice. And here's my plan. Mm-hmm. It starts with getting the help that we actually deserve from Washington, D.C. And think about this. Every year, New Yorkers send $26.5 billion more to Washington, D.C. than we get back in return in services. Now is the time when we were the hardest hit city in the world this spring. Now is the time that New York City needs a mayor who will get New York the help it needs in its time of need. And no one is in a better position to do that. I I can pick up the phone not only and call President Biden or Vice President Harris, who I've both worked with very closely, but nearly every senior appointment in the entire administration is somebody I've worked with that I know, built relationships with, our leaders in Congress. So that's the first thing. That's going to be but it's not going to necessarily fix the entire problem. Second, how much of a sigh of relief is it to have 50 Democratic senators to be able to (laughs) get that as a lifeline? Well, it's it is a relief to have 50. It is especially relief to have a Brooklynite for the first time ever as majority leader. You know, Chuck is someone I know extremely well in Sandy. 
you know, I worked hand in hand with him to get the $60 billion that we won from Congress, a record in record speed. We delivered it to New York and, and put it to work. And you are absolutely right, Charlie. We, we are lucky, but look, we need a mayor who can take advantage of that, who, who really has the relationships, the knowledge. Nobody understands where the bodies are buried in DC, how things work, what the programs are better than I, and let me just give you an example. Last week, I was on the, I reached out to the incoming Homeland Security Secretary who oversees FEMA and so much else. He's a good friend. He's a supporter of my campaign, Ali Mayorkas. And I was telling him about this effort called Common Table I told you about earlier and the ways that we could actually use FEMA aid. Think about this. We could get hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars injected into our restaurants in New York City without Congress doing anything, without passing any legislation if we had the right mayor in city hall to work with the federal government to get that kind of aid those are the kinds of things that could really make a difference in jumpstarting our recovery keeping our restaurants open growing them faster putting people back to work but we need somebody who understands how how to get that done gotcha. but I, but so, i would also say we need to do much more and and i'm the only candidate who's put out a concrete plan about how we lower the cost of government, make it more efficient, bring technology to make uh, it work better, and also can find the ways for innovative new sources of revenue. One super quick follow-up, you know, this relationship between the city and, you know, the federal government, I think most average New Yorkers, that goes right over their heads in a lot of ways. How would you really, really quickly and succinctly hammer that home to the average voter? Well, I, I ride the subway just about every day. How do you like waiting 20 minutes, half an hour for your subway? What if it breaks down every time you're on it? That's a real impact in your life. We got $4.5 billion to help our subways in New York City out of that bill that was negotiated. And if we have the right mayor, it could make the difference between having a subway that you can ride to work or having to pay for an Uber or a cab, having to walk, whatever it might be. It, the, the transportation, homelessness, every issue you think about, if you think it's a problem in New York City right now, we are not going to solve it without having the help and the relationships with Washington, D.C. that can help us fix it. So let's play a little revisionist history game here and imagine that you have been elected and, and sworn in as mayor January 1st, 2020. How would you have handled the following issues differently? The very, very early pandemic response and then also the the, the racial equity protests in, in June, had you been mayor? Yeah. For me, Charlie, the moment where I felt Bill de Blasio made the biggest mistake of that early response, Oxiris Barbeau, his, his health commissioner, came to him and said, we have to be more aggressive on this. You have to get out there, 
pushed him on that hard. And, and not only did the mayor not respond quickly enough to close down the city, he also took it personally and made the decision to shift testing and contact tracing away from arguably the best health department in the world, the New York City Department of Health, and give it to the Health and Hospitals Corporation, even though that wasn't their expertise. And to me, and I, and I talked earlier about having deep, deep experience leading through crisis, one of the leadership lessons I've learned, especially in moments of crisis, is that the most dangerous thing for any leader is to surround yourself with people who won't tell you the truth. We've seen the consequences of that in the White House for the Are last Are you talking to anybody years. specifically or? Excuse me? Are you talking about anybody specifically or? No, 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 no. Hint, he has orange hair. <laughs> but look, I've seen, I think we've seen it in City Hall as well. And when you create a culture where people are afraid to tell you the truth, when, when you punish folks like Mayor de Blasio did, his health commissioner. In fact, she quit a few weeks later. You send a message that you don't want people to tell you the truth. And guess what? We lose lives. In, those, in that situation, because of that decision, more New Yorkers died than should have. And for me, that goes to not only a specific decision that he made, it goes to leadership. And wanting to know the truth, wanting to surround yourself with the best possible people who will tell you what you need to hear, even if you don't want to hear it. So what about the, the racial equity side in June? You know, Charlie, you can't see it because this is a podcast, but over my right shoulder is a portrait of John Lewis who I met 30 years ago this year. He was a, a hero of mine. I met him because I was so fascinated by the civil rights movement, by the history of peaceful protest in this country, that as a student, I had this crazy idea I was gonna retrace the route of the Freedom Rides on a bicycle. <laughs> and I did it with a group, an interracial group of friends from school. I like you, I think, Charlie, I'm a big biker. and. Yeah. We cold called John Lewis, never met him before. Not only did he give, him, give us a meeting, he came and had dinner with us at a Chinese restaurant the night before we left because that's what the Freedom Riders did 30 years before. And he rode the first mile with us. Hadn't been on a bike in a long time. Oh, cool. <laughs> so when you ask me about the protesters this summer, what part of what I remember is that John Lewis, in the last days of his life, last summer, wrote about those protesters, wrote about them with joy and hopefulness, and asked the New York Times to publish it on the day that he died. We have to respect and treasure people, particularly young people, who will stand up and remind us what America is about. 
remind us of the values we as New Yorkers. We welcome people from across the world. We welcome people that look different from us. And when you let a police department take away that right for free speech, for nonviolent protest, you do a deep disservice to John Lewis, to, to the history of what has made this country and this city better. And so for me, that was a moment where every one of us in, as New Yorkers had to look ourselves in the eye and say, are we really who we say we are? Do we value the things we say we value? Just as we've had to do that this past week. I was thinking about John Lewis with, with joy in my heart on Tuesday night last week, thinking he was watching over us. And on Wednesday, with horror in my soul, remembering his words that voting is the single most powerful nonviolent tool we have in a democracy. I think he believes that right behind voting is nonviolent protest. And so, tact so tactically speaking, though, if you're if if you're the mayor, and and you know, obviously, I guess this is where I'm getting at is the the cooperation or direction given to the police department is how, how would you have handled that perhaps differently than the mayor did well first of all tactics like kettling like the aggressive response allowing vehicles to be used as almost like weapons against some of the protesters completely unacceptable. So it was both the tactics themselves, but all the, also the reaction to them, to say that it was okay, essentially, too many times. Those were specific things that, for me, were unacceptable. So along those lines, how should New Yorkers be thinking about crime and safety in New York today and going forward? Well, I think we have to understand that policing can be different. Uh, again, I, I talked earlier about, you know, too many times I think New Yorkers, many others around this country think that these, these problems are not solvable. I'm somebody who has worked with mayors across the country and solved these problems. I, I was part of the 21st Century Policing Task Force for President Obama. I worked with great leaders in policing like Chuck Ramsey, who had been police chief in Philly, African-American, had found a way both to create safety and respect at the same time. And my plan for this really would do three things. To reimagine policing and the relationship with communities, to reduce the role of police, in our communities and, and to reinvest in the kinds of efforts that break the cycle of incarceration and reduce violence and crime in our in our communities. And, and just quickly on reimagining, there are ways to create accountability, transparency, to train police for de-escalation that I've seen work in other places, that I've been part of the efforts. I led as budget director the effort to you know, think about this, Lillian and Charlie, we, we used to 
in the federal government gives surplus military equipment to police departments. You talk about one of the root causes of the kind of militarization of policing and the, the relationships of mistrust that have developed. That was one of them. We, we stopped that. There, there are lots of steps we need to take to reimagine policing so that we can start to rebuild trust with communities. We also are asking the police to do too much. We should not be asking the police to patrol the hallways of our schools and put them in conflict with students, particularly students of color and parents of color. We shouldn't be asking the police to be mental health experts and criminalizing homelessness. There are lots of efforts around alternative 911s, street teams. My sister was a psychiatrist who worked on a street team. I know this can this can work. And we need so we need to reduce the role of, of police, but we also need to reinvest. Right now, think about this. We spend almost $600,000 per prisoner per year in our correction system. We need to solve our policing challenges, but we also need to remake our criminal justice system so that we fo focus less on the criminal and more on the justice part of it. Gotcha. So just going to give you an opportunity to swing for the fences here on either transportation, education, or housing, pick any one of the three. What is just one big, bold idea that you want to put out there? You know, maybe it'll never get passed or whatever, but something that should at least be in the consideration set for any one of those three areas, transportation, education, or housing. But, so you need to move the Overton window over for us on something. Yeah. Well, Charlie, since we've talked a little bit about education and, and housing already, let's let's talk transportation. And this is not just a pie in the sky idea. This is something that can actually get done. Bike highways. I actually do have a plan for bike highways in my transportation plan I put out of a few weeks ago. I guess when you're mayor, you're going to make bike highways. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, for me, it's bus rapid transit. And, and this mm -hmm. is not the 14th Street version of bus rapid transit. Um, not dedicated lanes. And I, and, and I will... I will Put out there. I haven't. I haven't confirmed this yet, but I'm pretty sure it's true that I am the only candidate in the race for mayor who's actually been to Curitiba, Brazil, which has the best bus rapid transit system in the world. Sat with the mayor, who was an architect like me, actually, before becoming mayor, and he personally explained to me how that how that system works. What this looks like is much more like an above ground subway right. with dedicated lanes, raised platforms so that it's easy for folks to get on and off, particularly our seniors and people with disabilities. And most importantly, we actually create the technology that allows when one of these buses is approaching a light, the driver can switch the light, that you have sequenced lighting all organized so that you can move dramatically faster through the city. You know, I have this bigger picture idea, which you might say is swinging for the fences too, but I think we can get done if I'm mayor for the 15 minute neighborhood. What it means is that for every New Yorker, no matter where you live, 
you should have within 15 minutes of your front door a great school for your kid, fresh food. You should have a, access to a park to play and breathe and run, especially in a pandemic like this. And you should be within 15 minutes of great transportation to get you to a good job. And right now we have too many transit deserts in our city. I know I can't wait the decades that it would take to expand our subway system to every one of those neighborhoods. We don't have the resources right now, but we can actually build the best bus rapid transit system in the world. We are, we are trying to run a 21st century city with 20th century transportation, and that needs to change. So just to switch it up a little, as we're down to the end here, we've, we have two little lighter questions to, to toss in here. And I'll, I'll, I'll let Lillian jump in with the first and maybe the most important question that we've asked. Yeah, hands down, probably the most consequential question you'll get this entire cycle is, what is your favorite slice of pizza in New York City? And is it round or is it square? Well, it's round, first of all. <laughs> You know, it's it's hard for me not to think immediately of my boys and my, my family. I, I'm married to an amazing woman, Liza Gilbert. Our tradition started that every Sunday night, we would have Grimaldi's on the front stoop together. Talk to our neighbors as they went by, hang out with the boys. And so I'm never going to beat that that pizza that that I remember every Sunday night with with the family on our stoop on Bergen Street. Amazing. Mets or Yankees? Yankees. <laughs> I, well, I, I told you, Charlie, I told you about <laughs> the Bronx and how powerful the Bronx is in my in my history in my life. I'm a lifetime Yankees fan. I was at the 1977 World Series. The Reggie Jackson three homer game. That was the oh, Bronx's wow. burning World Series. Yeah, sure. After 20 years, it is time we don't have a Red Sox fan in City Hall. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we can all agree on that. Agreed. For sure. For sure. We just look forward to to watching the rest of this super interesting race transpire. Yes. I, I look forward to coming back. Maybe we can meet up on a bicycle somewhere and head across the Brooklyn Bridge. Sounds great. That would be great. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. That's all the time we have for today, but we'll uh, see you next time. We, we hope you tune in wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. So thanks for spending the time with us. Yeah, thanks for joining. <laughs>